Dallas Shaw. Ah, oh, very good. Hey, can y'all hear me? All right, Bamses. Okay, uh, one thing that's been on my mind last week has been this idea of dispensation. You know, so I had to look it up. Wanted to make sure I could say it right. So it's a one-time exemption from the usual, a rendering, a uh, a tearing of the laws of heaven and earth or the universe. And I think that's what happened on Saturday. Is is this idea that there was a one-time dispensation, uh, and Rex said, Rex actually said that that was a good thing, you know, because otherwise it'd be boring to watch the Army Navy game. So I don't expect it to happen ever again. Um, but at the same time, it's a dispensation. All right, so uh, our reading today from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Lord, please let us not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, that this would sink in and this would be something that we'd be able to apply that we'd go forth from here, Lord, earnestly trying to put this into application. We love you, and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, uh, the problem with being a hammer is that everything tends to look like a nail. So going back, and, and in this, I see what looks like to me like a commander's intent. And I see the three parts, purpose, method, and end state. Purpose. The purpose that I see spoken about here in these verses are uh, to equip God's holy ones and again, or really saints is the way that most of, uh, most of the translations will translate it, for works of service. And the method that's used is to the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and the end state. The end state is that we have saints who are, one, united and mature, two, no longer easily deceived by the world and by Satan, three, able to speak the truth in love, and four, Parts of the body able to do its work. Now, I looked up another uh, translation of verse 11, and it's from the CUV and the BAH translations. Okay? And what it says is, and he gave some to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and some to be laity and spectators. Okay? So, so the CUV version is the completely uninspired version, and the BAH is the blasphemous and heretical version. Okay? The interesting thing is, there's not one place. It never mentions this idea of a lady. That's what I said when I first started my research on this, uh, except that it does mention them once. It never mentions spectators, though, but it does mention the lady uh, in uh, at least one of the versions. And what the interesting part is, is that it's this verb, or this word, zur, and we'll get into that here in a second. 
But there's a reason why there is this idea of the laity. Okay? When you look on uh, the sheet there in the notes, you have the breakout of the King James Version, or really the way that this verse, verse uh, 12, was translated for a long time. For a long time, it had what uh, Armitage Robinson called the fatal comma. Okay? What it did was it took that next sentence, it took this idea of the perfecting of the saints, comma, separate and mutual clause, unto the work of the ministering, comma, separate clause, and the building of the body of Christ. Three separate ideas, all mutually exclusive. Okay? The thing is, is that when R.C. realized there's no linguistic authority for this, Okay? that they're not three mutually exclusive ideas. What it is rendered in the King James Version uh, 21 and in the NIV and most of the modern translations is for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. So perfecting saints for the work of ministry. Now, what was the impact of this fatal comma of, the, of that translation for the longest time was to create this ecclesiological bias, this idea that, look, the work of the ministry is for ministers, only ministers, okay? What's interesting is that I actually experienced that growing up, you know? My mom would tell me, Dallas, never read the Bible by yourself, ever. It's like, look, don't read it unless you have a priest there because you might get the wrong interpretation, you know, and go do something wacky, you know, like tell people about Christ, right? Amen. So then, and, and further, when I got saved a little while later, I was like, Mom, can you? Can you believe it? We're supposed to go into all the world and baptize all men in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and tell everybody about And she's like, e, no, that's not you. <laughs> I was like, really? She's like, no, no, that's other people. That's, that's the priest, the people that get paid for it. And I was like, oh. And I then thank God I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to her. I didn't listen to her about most things, unfortunately. But this was, this was one of the times where it was a good thing and I didn't get disciplined for it. So the larger part here is that what, it, what was the effective? Effect was to create lazy sheep, right? Spectators, audience members like me, right? It was. For the longest time, that's exactly what happened. I was like, there was this idea of leave the work of the ministry to the professionals. So I asked this question at the first, at the first part. It said, but what about the laity? You know, certainly it got to mention it. And my, my thought was, I'm going to look in there and I'm going to do the blue letter Bible and I'm going to prove that that never mentions the layman or laity anywhere in the Bible. And I was wrong, and it does. It mentions it exactly nine times in only one translation in the New American Standard Bible. mentions it nine times only in the Old Testament. And it's this word, zur. Blam, you can't see it, can you? Okay, but anyway, it's spelled Z-U-W-R. It's in your notes, okay? And the interesting part is that the other 70 times that it's used in the, New, in the Old Testament, it's used describing... Stranger, estranged, profane, like that idea of profane fire or strange fire that, that Pastor Mark talked about, that's what it's talking about, zur, is this idea of something unusual. The weird used, when it's translated in the, the uh, NIV, it's not translated layman, it's translated anyone other than a priest. In the King James, it's translated stranger. Now, Whenever you see it used, um, you see it used twice in Exodus, three times in Leviticus, and four times in Numbers, every single time. So uh, some of the instances, so you have laymen or strangers cannot share in the ordination meal. Laymen or strangers cannot use priestly perfume. Laymen or strangers cannot come near the tabernacle uh, when it's, uh, or do the do, perform the duties. 
uh, lame or strangers should not burn incense. What's interesting about that is these aren't Gentiles. Not Gentiles. Strangers. And I'm like, so you're a, 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 an Israelite. You're part of the body of Israel. And you're a stranger still, somehow. You're profane, unholy. Right? That, to me, is amazing. These aren't people that are completely separated from God. But then we go forward into the New Testament. And the interesting thing is, these two words aren't used anymore, for the most part. Priest and layman. The only place that we see this rendering of, the, of, of a priest is Hebrews 4.4, 4, or let me make sure it's 4.4. 4, yeah, 4.14, where we're talking about Jesus Christ as our great high priest. There's one, blam, that's it. No more other priests. Except in Revelation 1.6, where it's a kingdom of priests, where everybody's a priest. So it loses any useful distinction among people. Everybody is one, okay? So the point is, is that this idea of priest mentioned in any of the offices in verse 11 or any of the offices of the church in 1 Timothy isn't re used again. The other part is this idea of laity or stranger or profane among the body of Christ, not used again. The only useful distinction that they're able to come up with and use from that point on is hagios, or this idea of holy ones or saints. And the nearest distinction that I can see in the offices mentioned in verse 11 and the offices mentioned in 1 Timothy is this idea of saints who are equippers or equip and saints who are sent. They're still the same body, so they have different tasks but the same purpose. So the question, I think, that has to come out of there, so what is the operative difference or the value between church leaders and the saints in the church, those who equip and those who are sent? To be honest, I, I looked at a couple different ones. I looked at, uh, I thought it would be too nerdy if I started talking about Title 10 and the Goldwater-Nichols Act, and you have the uh, Title 10 providers, the service providers, you know, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Army, and their job is train, man, and equip, and you have those who are actually employing them, the COCOM commanders, but I thought there was a better one. So on Saturdays, uh, some of the guys here are reading, rereading, uh, Mere Christianity. In book two, chapter two, it talks about the invasion, and it's an awesome one, but it, it depicts Christians. <laughs> we're the insurgents. You know, we're not the established government here. We're the insurgents. I mean, that, that has a way of blowing your mind a little bit, and we've got to remember What's an insurgency? Insurgency is a movement dedicated to the overthrowing of the government or the, or the constituted current authority. So we seek to overthrow the spiritual government. Okay? I mean, specifically, it talks about Ephesians 2.2, 2, where you have Satan as the prince of the power of the air. We have in 2 Corinthians 4.4, where it talks about Satan as the god of this age. So we really are operating behind enemy lines, what C.S. Lewis was talking about, trying to overthrow the constituted spiritual system. So the pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, deaconesses constitute what I think of as an A-team, as a special forces A-team, right? That's their job, unconventional warfare, operating behind enemy lines. We've got some people who have done it before. We've got some, some Bob Altimers, we've got some Greg Waves, we've got some Dan Howes, we've got Dan Howes' son, a few people that have operated that do that. And what I want to point out is that this idea of unconventional warfare, Right? That's what special forces do. They, they, they parachute in, they work with the indigenous forces, and it says, these are, this is the DOD definition, activities conducted to enable a resistance movement, that's us, okay, 
an insurgency to coerce, disrupt, overthrow an occupying power or government by operating through or with an underground or auxiliary guerrilla force in a denied area. That's, I, that's book two, chapter two of Mere Christianity. That's what exactly what uh, C.S. Lewis was talking about. But what do they prepare us to do? I would say that from these verses, they prepare us to do two things. One, discern truth. Two, speak it. Discern truth and speak it in love. So how do they help us discern truth? Well, the whole point here is, is that, uh, and the, uh, I'm certain that this is the example that most people have heard at some point in their Christian uh, lives, is this idea of the secret service. How do they determine, they discern counterfeit money from from gen the genuine article. How do they train them? They don't train them by looking at the counterfeit, right? They train them by becoming intimately familiar with the genuine article. What's Pastor Marty's task? What's Pastor Michael, Pastor Bob's? What's Pastor Matt's task? It's to expose on a daily basis to the genuine article, not the counterfeit, okay? It's years spent reading the Bible and understanding what the genuine article. Then when we're faced with false systems of theology, false systems of religion, false systems of even science, that we have a baseline truth to evaluate every other ideology against, to determine truth. So having learned to discern the truth, to identify the truth, the next one it talks about is this idea of speaking it in love. To what end, though? If we're operating behind enemy lines, Right? We've been equipped. We go out to discern truth, but then to employ it. And I would even say employ it as, and again, and I use this loosely, as a weapon system or as a tool to what? To free hostages. We're told that they're bound by Satan, that the world's bound by Satan. Our job, operating behind enemy lines, is to free hostages. Now, for the first part of my career on the enlisted side, the bulk of that time, I spent doing in extremist hostage rescue. They had to change the name to in extremist hostage recovery. <laughs> They decided to make a distinction between what we were doing and what the national military or the, the, the higher-level guys were doing. Recovery, that's us. Rescue, that's them. Well, the problem was, I mean, you can imagine where, what, how alive you are in recovery and how alive you are in rescue, right? Okay, but the, the good part was that I noticed four things out of doing that was the, that was required to pull this off successfully. Number one was preparation. Two was precision. Three was opportunity, and four was motive. So in 1993, I got sent to this army school that was run by the Delta guys, and again, all it sounds good, but they teach you to be their lackeys, you know. It literally, it's it's great school. Um, it shows you where you fit in the in the food chain, right? But one of the key things is they gave you a quick brief to let you know who they were. They're like, hey, this is 1993, 70% of the guys in Delta at that time had been there since the 70s. I'm like, goodness, man, you could take a cook, a baker, or a candlestick maker, right? They do anything for 20 years. You're going to get kind of good at it, right? So imagine if all you do is shoot for 20 years, you're going to be a little good at it, right? Okay, but that wasn't enough. Then they bumped it up to this idea of percentage shots. Percentage shots, whenever you, if you ever see it, it's the typical target where you see this bad guy holding a hostage, right? And he's got the gun. The reason it's a percentage shot is because only a percentage of the, the terrorist is exposed, right? You can only, you only get a percentage of the target to shoot at. So you're trying to drill that target and they take millions of those shots. So it's not enough to be prepared, but they had to be precise in the application of that. 
Otherwise, there's a, there's a very good chance to just shoot the hostage. The whole reason you came there in the first place. And I think you guys should already start to develop why this is a, where the parallel is. Then in terms of opportunity, if they've been a 20-year career just doing that one thing, how many hostage rescues have you heard of? Now, granted, there's, a lo- there's probably quite a few that they did that weren't necessarily publicized, but you could go your entire career with doing one or two or none. But that doesn't mean that they're not constantly listening and trying to find it. That, that, that ears peaked, watching the news, listening to intel reports, the moment that it looks like something's developing, that there's this idea that they start pushing in that direction in order to what? To act at, at a moment's notice. And then finally, motive. Who can explain to me the valuable exchange of 45 to 100, 200, however many assaulters are going on this thing, in exchange for the lives of a handful of hostages? How is that? How is that remotely a valuable exchange, right? And what the strange part is, let's say we get all the hostages out alive, but you lose two or three assaulters. That's still success. Now, that's the amazing part. The assaulters know that. Now, think about it. They have to operate with this motive of sacrifice and love that drives all the other ones. So we look back at this from a Christian perspective. We talk about this idea of preparation. I had years of preparation in terms of reading the Bible, but have you gone to people who are broken and have lost somebody? Maybe that person, there's, it's, it's questionable whether or not they were saved or not. Uh, you can apply the Bible very effectively and still harm the hostage, harm the person that you meant to free in the first place. So it wasn't enough to know the Bible, the word, the truth, but to apply it with precision so you're not harming the very person that you meant to help, and then looking constantly for the opportunity to apply it to speak and speak the truth, and then finally, in love, that motive, that operating motive that, that guides all the other actions. Why is it that you're doing it in the very first place? And if we're not doing it, then that's actually a problem. Okay, so then we've got to get back to the, the analogy that Paul uses from the start, the, uh, the analogy of the body, and I looked at it, and if you saw the screen, what you'd see is this broke down into three parts of the body, and what I noticed that if there's a, saints who equip and saints who are sent, then the equippers would be those parts of the body that would minister to the body. They would keep the body operating and keep the body effective. Heart, lungs, brain, uh, anything that would just facilitate interaction within the body. Okay? I had uh, AM and PM base camp teachers as no hair, nose hair and toenails. I thought that was pretty funny. I wasn't sure who was going to be which, but I thought that was pretty good. I was like, well, somebody's got to be the nose hair, and nose hair is important. Um, so anyway, I just thought that was hilarious because I have nose hair now. Uh, I didn't have nose hair before, and I was like, uh. then, then there are parts of the body, right, that are only useful for the interaction outside the body, like vocal cords, okay? And I would see those as missionaries. They don't serve another purpose. But then there's this parts of the body that serve two functions. The functioning of the body, hands, feet, eyes, mouth, stuff like that. But it also serves a purpose in reaching outside the body. And you start to see like the first serve ministries, right? Where it's talking about Bible or uh, parking, ushers, coffee, stuff like that. So what I would ask you to consider, please, is uh, every one of those are parts of the body, living parts of the body. Which ones are you? Where do you fit in that schema? But while we're thinking about that, I realize, holy cow, there are other parts of the body that aren't necessarily alive, right? They're, they're inanimate parts of the body, if you will. 
Not the hair, not the toenails and stuff, but clothes, watches, jewelry, tattoos, stuff like that. The interesting thing is they don't, they're not negative, right? They decorate the body. It looks really good. Actually, like clothes, for instance, they have a protective value, protective quality for the body. But the tragedy of those ornamental parts of the body is that they don't get fed by the body. And that's heartbreaking. My last church, um, church I love, is still to this day love. There was a guy in there who served, gave. I mean, this guy, there's no one that was giving more. I don't know how well we knew him. And later on, he committed suicide. Absolute value to the body. I'm not sure that the body was a value to him. I don't know if the body was equipped or allowed to be a value to him. And see, I know some people in the room that have been transparent with me and that I've been allowed to be transparent with them who have been given license to speak into my life and I've been given license to speak into theirs. God forbid that we're not doing that, that we're part of the body, but we're not, we're not, we receive no benefit from it. And then the last part is there's actually dead parts of the body that actually cause harm, you know, cuts, bruises, uh, foreign particles, disease. I don't want to get too far into that uh, because, again, ideally we, we're not dealing with that here, but we should be aware of it. But the one part that I do want to leave you with is that whether you were called to be someone that equips strictly within the body or sent out of the body or some kind of dual function, we were all called to do a few jobs. One, to be the bride of Christ, hands down. There's nobody in here, no male in here, no man in here that wasn't called to be the bride of Christ. And what's amazing to me about that is, I was like, bride? I was like, I don't have a lot of experience with that, you know? And then I realized I have a wife. And, yeah, who knew? <laughs> and I realized, I was like, man, I feel phenomenally respected by her and adored. And I thought, oh, if I, if that, you know, that's how she treats me, then that's how I'm and so I've started watching closely what she does and trying to emulate that with Christ. We're all called to that. You can't escape that. Second thing is, every single one of us in 1 Corinthians eleven 13, we're called to be the pastor and teacher of our marriage. Every one of us, without exception as men, are called to be the pastor and teacher of our families, our kids, Proverbs 22, 6. During the summer, during the Global Leadership Summit, they brought up this idea of being the pastor and teacher of your place of employment. And I thought that was important, where, you know, I'm looking at Priscilla and Aquila or, or Paul as a tent maker, this idea that um, I thought, I was like, man, I want to be a missionary. Maybe I'll go somewhere and tell people. I was like, I looked around where I work. I was like, man, uh, can't swing a dead cat without hitting somebody around here that doesn't know Christ. I was like, I don't have to go anywhere. They're all right here. It's like God bought all the unsaved people to me. So literally, it's right there where I work, Okay. And then I would say that we're all called to be evangelists. Now, we may not be called to be evangelists in another country, right? But we've all received the Great Commission to go into all the world to baptize all men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I thought, I was like, man, that's a daunting task. I mean, who's equipped for this, this stuff? And then I realized, Yelp. Yelp evangelism. It's awesome, right? My wife, this is a little, we don't, we're not allowed to go to a restaurant or anywhere without looking at Yelp first. And it's so annoying. You know, I'm like, that looks like a great restaurant. Well, let's Yelp it first. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, nope, we only got two stars. We don't go. We really don't go. And I thought, what's the power? What is this power of Yelp? Right? It is powerful. And then I realized that it's the perception, real or otherwise, that all of the feedback on there are from real people and customers that use the service. 
These are testimonials by what they did for me. I used to try to memorize Romans Road and all these really intellectual arguments for why people should come to Christ. And, hey, look, uh, the threat of hell or the promise of heaven. And then I realized, what did Christ do for me? That's my mission. That's, that's our evangelism. All we got to do is do some Yelp evangelism. Just give a testimony. What did Christ do for you? You know, again, it, it's not this, this great theological argument. What did Christ do for you? Sufficient. Okay, so our discussion questions. You're going to look on the bottom of your sheet. I would ask, and this is something that I wrestle with, who is the pastor and teacher of my marriage? Who's the pastor and teacher of my family, of my place of employment? Number two, do I receive benefit from being in the body of Christ? And if so, what, to what end? What benefit in the body of Christ? And three, why is it so difficult to speak the truth in love? And how can we overcome that difficulty? Well, that's all I have. All right. <laughs>